This is Limit Up, a trading podcast presented by the performance coaches at Top Step. We discuss futures, forex, stocks, options, history, trading psychology. Basically, if you can trade it, we'll try our best to make sense of it. Now, on to the show. Howdy, traders. Welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step. I am one of your hosts, Jack Pelzer. And I'm feeling like the uh, king in the castle right now because I have taken over Dan's desk in the office. That's right. While he's sitting in Wisconsin, I am here running court over his desk with a brand new computer, and uh, it's putting me on a real power trip. I'm also feeling on a high because today Dan and I interviewed a super interesting guest. Uh, He's Jared Tendler, and he's the author of the upcoming book, The Mental Game of Trading, which you can find on Amazon. Or any other bookstore. If you're still lo-fi going to a Barbara's Books or a Barnes and Nobles in, I don't know, 1999, I'm sure there'll be a way to find it there too. Um, great interview. Jared is an expert in the psychology of performance, whether that's golf, where he cut his teeth, or poker. He's written two books about that, or trading now. This is advice that can really take you to the next level in a whole lot of activities. But since you're listening to this podcast, I'm going to assume that trading is first and foremost in your mind. And speaking of trading, I'm supposed to tease an upcoming feature that we're going to be adding to the Top Step family. It's called Coach T. And Coach T is your digital performance coach. We're super excited. Our product department has been working on this for you know almost a year now. And just check out our website, And if you're on our mailing list, you'll probably get an email to see what this is all about. But we think that this is a tool that can really help you diagnose the weaknesses and assess the strengths in your trading. So who doesn't love that? Well, I won't blather on too much longer. Uh, We'll get straight to it with this interview with Jared Tendler, author of The Mental Game of Trading. And we'll catch you after the break. Hey, everybody out there. Welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step. I'm Jack Pelzer. Joined by Dan Hodgman. Dan, how are you doing? Jack, I'm great. I'm really excited about today's podcast. I was going to say, I'm always glad to see you, Dan, but we actually have another guest with us today for pretty much the whole episode, and that is Dan. Who is it? Uh, Jared Tendler. Yes. I was, I was about to go with the nicknames that we were just saying beforehand, and I had to think twice on it just to be safe. We were just talking to uh, Jared before, and he was talking about how people had mispronounced his name Jerry a bunch, and it subconsciously put it in my head, and now I'm going to fight not doing that. But Jared, (laughs) thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Jared is the author of the new book that's coming out called The Mental Game of Trading. He's a, how would you best describe your profession? You're a performance psychologist. So I can't say psychologist because I don't have a PhD, but uh, I go with mental game coach, uh, mental coach. Uh, basically, my job is to get rid of you know, the effect that emotion has on decision making or execution. So whether you're a trader, poker player, sports better, golfer, um, you know, that, that's kind of the nuts and bolts of what I do. Well, thanks so much for joining us and everybody out there. Uh, as promised, we have moved into our trading psychology quarter of excellence, right? So for the next 12 weeks, we're going to dive into this. And the timing could not have been better to get Jared on here. Uh, just to kind of introduce yourself, what you've such an interesting career that as far as I can tell, started with being a pretty badass golfer. So why don't you just tell us how you came to get into that field and kind of 
how what you do is done in practice. Yeah, I mean, uh, listen, I, I'm I'm glad that you know I was so well timed to get into the quarter of excellence here in psychology and time <laughs> you guys. So um, you know, those kudos to our our uh, brains meeting there. Um, so I, you know, I, I as a kid, you know, I was an athlete. I played I played baseball, played tennis, played golf, uh, basketball, and you know, just always loved competing and um, wanted to be a professional. Start, you know, first it was tennis player, but I was you know four eleven, and Michael Chang and Andre Agassi were kind of the only ones under six feet, and sure. You know, so then, you know, then golf kind of popped on the radar and, um, you know, got good very, very quickly um, and, you know, wanted to play professional golf for obvious reasons. So, but my freshman year of college, I had won a couple of tournaments and then had gone off in the summer to qualify for the U.S. Open and played the best golf of my life, Tita Green, and choked, you know, missed like four three foot putts and missed a playoff by a shot to move on to sectionals, which would basically be like a modified PGA Tour event. You know, the U.S. Open, most players in the, in the event don't qualify automatically. They've got to go through qualifying stages. So, you know, it was a massive deal. And, you know, I basically pissed my pants and failed. So, um, <laughs> you know, first time around, you're like, ah, eh, it's like probably a one-off. And then, you know, friends started handing me, you know, golf's not a game of perfect. And I start kind of diving into sports psychology. And my game continues to get better and better, you know, year over year. I was a three-time All-American. This is Division Three Skidmore. But, you know, we're still competing at a national championship level. Um, and, and, but it, you know, like under the kind of the bright lights of big individual national events, like us open us amateur, I just kind of kept failing. So it, it just kind of, kind of started to reason that the traditional golf psychology, the traditional sports psychology out there was just a little bit sort of too surface based and wasn't kind of getting into the heart of why it was that I was, you know, experiencing so much pressure, whatever those issues were. And so I decided to get a degree in counseling psychology a uh, master's degree, um, and then subsequently a license, spent 3,200 hours, two years, you know, basically, you know, getting licensed, but I never intended to practice. I only wanted to take the skill set that a therapist had to dig into problems and combine it with sports psychology to create, you know, this hybrid. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But so basically, I, I get my license, quit my job, fly to Arizona, um, and start building up my golf practice and started working with, you know, amateur golfers, professional golfers, and, and you know, kind of the, the, the Phoenix Scottsdale area. And, you know, built up a decent practice. Um, you know, one of my guys is 10, who was 10 years old at the time now is on the Corn Ferry Tour, uh, which is pretty cool. But, you know, for the most part, um, I, I struggle to kind of really break through into the golf market, mostly because golfers are, you know, a little, you know, they kind of talk outside of both sides of their mouth. Um, you know, they say it's a mental game, but they actually won't kind of like work on it. And so ironically, I found like a huge market in poker because now all of a sudden, you know, you had all these amateur players and professionals alike who obviously had an incentive to improve, you know, how they were emotionally handling things. But then you also didn't have, you know, the excuses, right? They couldn't buy golf clubs, right? There was nowhere you couldn't go practice, right? So they just had to, they just had to play. And, you know, there was nobody else doing it. Um, I got a, you know, pretty big name quickly and, and was working and still work with some of the best players in the world, uh, wrote two poker books and then traders started buying the poker books. And then, you know, esports people started buying the poker books. So, you know, it's it's kind of that, like, uh, you know, kind of one thing led to another. And and yes, the long answer is I did solve my own issues, started playing professional golf. Uh, and then, of course, you know, it was like right at the same time that poker was taking off. And so, yeah, the irony there is that poker was actually the safer bet. I love that irony right there. I mean, you look at it, you think golf, you 
I think a lot you're right on with a lot of people talking about golf is a mental game, but how do you how do you approach that? Well, I got to get better with my seven iron, right? I got to get better with my short irons. I got to update my putting. And then all of a sudden you get to poker. And I think poker is where it correlates to trading really well in the sense of the only way to practice is by doing. Um, you have to get in there. You have to execute trades. You have to execute on your, the hand that you're given. And you just like trading, you've got to trade what the market's showing you. So that transition there from poker into trading, I feel like that's a pretty natural transition. Did you experience that with traders to poker players? Like, okay, you guys have the same, you're all the same head cases. You got the same issues. I did. Yeah. And so what was cool is that as the transition occurred, I was working both with some institutional firms and also like some retail individual traders. And, you know, you kind of get like both examples of it. You get like the elite poker player equivalent institutionalized. And then you've got, you know, I, I'm not denigrating the individuals, but they tend to have more emotional issues than the institutional guys. I think mostly because of natural selection, right? They just get guys with bigger issues, just get weeded out of that environment. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, but yes, the, tra the, the transfer was there. Um, I, I think the interesting thing about trading relative to poker is just how much more complicated it is how much more variance it is, how many more variables are not knowable and unquantifiable in the short term. And so, you know, the demands of, of, of you know, having like a, a strong mental game for poker was already significant because of short-term variance relative to golf, relative to most other sports. You know, trading, I feel like, is like poker on steroids in that regard. Um, <laughs> and it's just, a, you know, easy to have your mind blow up. Yeah, Jared, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I was reading relatively recently that, you know, for the longest time, chess as a game was solved by computers. Now, I believe Texas Hold'em, or which they play at some of the biggest tournaments, is more or less solved. Like they have computers that will win. Uh, trading is certainly not, or else that algorithm would control all the wealth in the world at a certain point. So there's, it's a much more complex system. But it goes back to a lot. We've talked a lot on this show about how a lot of the people you'll run into, there's a big crossover between traders and poker players and professional poker players becoming traders. In fact, I think if golf were just putting, you would see a lot more demand for the sports psychology end of it as opposed to you know the infinite motor mechanics things they can work on. But I definitely see the thread between all of them. Before, before we move on, I wanted to, because uh, someone we work with really wanted to know as well, a little bit about your experience with esports, because that's a new thing. Yeah. So about uh, five years now, uh, Victor Goosens, who's the co-CEO of Team Liquid, contacted me. And he was a former roommate of a client of mine in poker. And Victor used to play poker, used to play StarCraft also, but, you know, was a poker player. So that's how he kind of found out about me. And, you know, I knew as much about esports as I knew about poker, um, which was, you know, close to zero. I mean, I, you know, I played video games as a kid and, you know, in college we're playing Bond, you know, just for a bunch of idiots, but not not to this level. Same with poker. I mean, I played, you know, AC Ducey and Setback and, you know, obviously Hold'em. But like, again, you know, you take anything to the highest level in the, and it's a whole different industry. So you know, my first experience, uh, you know, shortly after Victor contacted me was going to the Barclays Center in Brooklyn and watching a Counter-Strike event. And I get in there and, you know, you can see some crowds. So you're like, okay, this is probably a thing. And, you know, they kind of walked me into the, into the locker rooms where the guys were playing out of, because this wasn't kind of stage events yet. And, you know, these were 18 to 21 year old kids felt like, you know, competing and it didn't feel like that big a deal at that point. It's just like they're on a computer in a 
you know, like a dungeon of a, of a facility. And then you walk out to this like signing and I'm not exaggerating. There were a thousand people lined up to get autographs. And I was oh, like, yeah. wow. What, like, how is, how do not more people know about that? They're, this they're is what's about, happening. I, I kind of missed it, but they're talking about building a stadium in Chicago for esports. So they, they built one in Philadelphia. Yeah. There's a, it's, I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, I guess we'll, we'll loosely call it a stadium. I don't know how many people are going to be there, but I've been to these events. I mean, I've been around the world at these events and it's, it's, it's mind boggling, you know, the world championships. So there's, you know, it's a whole different ecosystem than it is like comparable to, to like traditional sports. So you have, you know, team liquid, you know, was uh, involved in like 13 different titles. So you're kind of like, you know, running the gamut of like kind of different ecosystems and different cultures and different styles and the way things that are run. Um, they're not run by professional sports franchises. They're run by these independent game makers and the game makers and the players and the organizations are all kind of trying to figure out how to monetize this thing, grow this thing. So League of Legends is the biggest participation game in the world. Um, and it's the one that, you know, kind of uh, ends up sort of being most compared to other sports because you know the the world finals of of the world of of League of Legends championship a couple of years ago garnered like twenty to thirty million concurrent viewers online, you know, at this event, and then you get replays afterwards, and you know it's insane. Um, you know, then you have a game called Dota, which is not the largest participation, but you know, two years ago the prize pool for first place was fifteen million dollars. Right, the the prize pool for the event was forty three million dollars. I mean, we're talking for incredible video numbers now oh, for yeah. video games. Dan, yeah. what, Dan, when I was trading at the prop shop, there was someone who was there um, and, and he had uh, emigrated from China. And so this was maybe a little bit like ahead of when this was like really taking off. But all night and overnight, he would just watch on YouTube. I, I couldn't tell what game they were playing. I think in retrospect, it was probably something like Starcraft or something. But it's incredible. And I bet there, of course, there's got to be a huge overlap there with you know, a lot of those skills that apply to esports are big in the trading industry too. You know, sitting in front of a screen, concentrating, strategy, things like That's that. That's exactly what I was kind of thinking about as you're talking about this. You're going into a small room and it's just a bunch of guys sitting at a computer. It reminds me of kind of a prop shop or a trading world. There's no one watching you in the trading world, but you're locked in onto a screen. It's just you and the mouse and a keyboard. And I feel like the more you talked about it, the more I'm starting to see that. Can I've never been a gamer. I had I had GoldenEye when I was a kid. I mean, you know, I played some GoldenEye. You, you know, you you wanted Ob Job because you were shorter than everyone else and you could get away <laughs> oh, from you're the one automatic. Of those people, eh? The hey, I'm not a gamer. I was awful at it. But the more you talked about it, the more I started thinking. I just wanted like, the rocket launcher in the corner, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, the more you talk about it, the more to me it started. To, I started to see that common connection between gaming which I never would have thought. I always thought poker was more realistic to trading. But then as you started talking about it, the more I thought, gosh, gaming is, and I talked to a lot of traders that that's their escape when they're trading is playing video games. Yeah, I mean, it, you're talking about making like a ton of decisions. I mean, e even if you're not executing a trade, you're still making decisions, right? Deciding not to get in or what you're going to start to look at or what area you're going to zoom into and you know, your mind is constantly thinking about things. So yeah, I mean, the emotional demands of these three industries, I think tend to be greater, right? Because the the environments are, are mostly sort of mental activity. So you're, you're kind of like in this like crossover where, you know, 
you have to start looking at your decision making as your technique, right? Equivalent to the golfer's golf swing, equivalent to, you know, a, a, a baseball player's, uh, you know, swing or throwing motion, right? There's technique to the way that you make decisions. And, and so then because it's not externalized, you can't see it, you can't videotape your decision making process, you can't, you know, then the interplay between a mental and emotional breakdowns and that decision making gets a little bit, you know, kind of fuzzier and harder to separate. You know, the ones that do it well, I think it's a big part of what my work is designed to do is to be able to, you know, kind of cleanly map these problems so that you can separate out and then to cleanly map your decision making. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this, but, you know, there's a client that's featured in the book, but, you know, 15 year trading veteran, you know, trading options, uh, I think oil and natural gas futures uh, and options, I think both um, at different times. And, you know, his issue that we worked through fundamentally came down to the fact that in these key moments when he'd have big opportunities, his knowledge of his own competence wasn't automatic, right? If he's sitting talking with us right now, casually, he'll tell you what his core competency is in 30 seconds without question. But in that moment, it got fuzzy. And because of that, then the self-doubt started to creep up, right? Then things started to, um, you know, then he would start seeking advice from other traders and, you know, it would, make him size the position too small. And, you know, then FOMO comes in. It's just all this chaos starts simply because he didn't have clear separation and clear distinguishing for his decision-making process and his core competence as a trader. Yeah, I think this is a perfect transition into the book, which uh, Jared was lucky enough to let Dan and I read an advanced copy. It's called The Mental Game of Trading, which is sort of, I guess you have your own franchise almost because you had also written two books about the mental game of poker. I suppose, or I'm just not that creative. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, hey, it works. Arl Stein, works, run with it, right? I guess so. Sure. Arl <laughs> Stein made uh, hundreds of millions of dollars writing four million Goosebumps books, so you know the formula works. <laughs> I don't know why I used that example and not like Harry Potter or something, but yeah. or uh, chicken soup. Sort of the kick <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to kick off this situation, uh, to kick off this uh, conversation. I thought there were some interesting sort of overarching themes of the book when when I read it. And one of them that we've heard, because we've talked previously with another, uh, when we talked with Dr. Menneker on the podcast, who is a uh, performance psychologist, uh, he was really keen on uh, the concept of emotions, what they really are, and how they interact with performance. And I saw in a recent blog article, and you see this come up again and again in the books, in the book, is you said emotions signal the problem, they are not the problem. So I know a lot of our traders have problems with, they say sometimes controlling emotions. We know we can't do that. We talk about managing emotions, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you see emotions as a signal of a problem. Yeah. Um, and I'll also say that you're right, like control and management, but really the goal that we're after is actually like correcting the real problem. And that's what the system is all about in my mind, because when we start to see that emotions like FOMO, like anger, like greed, like confidence issues, right, that those arise as a signal of these underlying performance flaws. And we kind of use the way that these things show up and we map them. So basically the first task as a trader going through my system, you know, this book or my coaching is to get a good clean map of, of what it is that shows up, you know, in the moments where these problems arise, right? Because you guys are very skilled at being able to read the market. You're just not as skilled at reading your own emotional variation. And so being able to kind of link certain patterns of thinking 
um, certain physical symptoms or signs. And then of course the emotions themselves as a symptom, as a, as a signal of these underlying performance flaws. And, you know, I, I've actually created a list because I was curious how many ended up in the book and we're talking over, over 20 of them. There's probably between 20 to 30 of these individual performance flaws. And what I mean by that is high expectations, confirmation bias, hindsight bias, illusion of control, um, thinking that you're smarter than the market, wanting to be right, proving yourself right, um, illusions of learning, right? These are just a handful of them. And, you know, in and of themselves, right, these flaws become like um, like a rock in your shoe, okay? Sure. You know, walking around, you know, you can kind of jiggle things around and, you know, get yourself comfortable so it's not painful. But at certain points, like the rock's going to move and it's going to freaking, you know, dig right into your your heel and and you know, then the big emotional reactions occur. And so, yeah, management and control becomes your way of kind of like shake this thing around and get it into a spot where it's not going to bother you and you prepare yourself for it. My system is about getting the freaking rock out of your shoe. And when you do that, it doesn't remove all emotion. Okay. You know, there's a number of traders featured in this book where we used emotion as the signal for them actually sucking, right? For their strategy being weak, right? One guy in the in the fear chapter, because in my opinion, fear is is overblown in trading, um, much like tilt was overblown in, in in poker. And so for him, you know, he was having a lot of hesitation, a lot of second guessing, basically like right around the point where he had to get in. And of course, you know, we know all the consequences of that. As it turns out, when he took time to answer all of the questions that he was having, like to think about what it was that he was uncertain about. His system improved X-fold, right? And yes, there was a, a fair amount of discretion. So it wasn't like he was, you know, trying to create an algorithm here. But the, the panic he was having was not a, an emotional issue. It was his emotion signaling the problem, which was his strategy was weak. And so when we start to look at it that way, then the goal entirely changes. Now we want, I want you to get to the point where your emotions will be more indicative of what's going on as your system or your strategy interacts with the market. That becomes its purest form because it can actually help you to generate intuition that like if you're starting to feel a little bit panicked, it's because there's something that you sense you can't quite articulate yet. But for most traders, especially ones that are kind of up and coming, they've got a lot of these performance flaws that compromise your ability to make that intuition be based off of your sense of the market versus it being based off of your own kind of internal psychology and you kind of imprinting bias in the market. Those are two very different things. And, and so we're not trying to eliminate emotion. We're trying to understand what the emotion is telling us and it can lead us in different directions based on, on what you find. So you bring up the fear, the fear chapter. And to me, I think when I look at trading, two of my three biggest themes is fear and greed. I looked at it and you've got the two back to back and instantly that I went, that's, that's exactly where I went. I instantly went, this has got to be on purpose, right? Because what I have seen, and this is, you know, my personal stuff and some of the traders I've talked to over the years is there's a very common theme between that fear and the greed getting into each other. So that was my question. So you're, you, you see that common thread and that was purposeful. Yeah. I mean, I think, so again, I'm not a trader. I'm not a poker player. I'm not an esport athlete. I'm a golfer. So I know competition at a high level. I also know what it takes to be a, be successful at a high level. So I, I frame that because, you know, there's been sort of three industries that I've now moved into that I've been the outsider. And I think sometimes 
I have an advantage being able to kind of observe, you know, the way things are being talked about and also identify some holes and some inconsistencies. So yeah, fear and greed are, are very commonly talked about, but when you start to dig below the surface about like, what are we really even talking about with greed? Right. And that was like the thing that always confused me. I was like, okay, so I understand greed on a societal level, right? Like we can debate that or we're not, we're not now because it's a massive debate. It's not going to go anywhere. Right. But when we look at it, like within the performance sphere, it's like, well, your job is to make money. So how is that greedy? Right. And then it's like, well, all right, well, if your job is to make money, what are the jobs of athletes? It's to win. So you never would say that, you know, Roger Federer, Tiger Woods, Jordan, you know, pick athlete is like, they're greedy because they want to win more. Like Belichick is greedy, you know, Brady's <laughs> greedy because he's got seven Super Bowls. Like, no, like we applaud that. So like, what are we, what are we really talking about? And, and so when you start to like kind of peel back the layers of greed, you realize that it's a performance issue that doesn't actually have a lot of substance. And so, yes, you can experience the emotion of greed, but how are you going to solve it? You're not going to solve it by attacking greed. It's like saying, be less ambitious. Like, no. So basically the way the book is structured and, you know, I say spoiler alert, you know, um, you're going to find out that the, that the performance flaws that cause greed are really down to the performance flaws that are more commonly associated with fear, anger, confidence, uh, overconfidence, uh, lacking confidence. So there's, cause all we're talking about is like your, your levels of ambition crossing a line where now you're making decisions that are kind of working against you. And the reason that occurs is because of those performance laws. You can't control it. That's the, that's the whole point. If you try to create kind of the governance on the top end where you're using your mind to kind of force yourself or, you know, like a lot of traders, you create a lot of these like strategies where, you know, you prematurely lock a profit or you size a little bit too small. I mean, I've heard you guys talk on, on previous podcasts about, you know, just like walking away from the trade and, you know, at the end of the day, like greed and like that walking away from a trade, I can't say from the outside that you're managing a, a, a an issue by doing that. Okay. Greed or some of these like solutions, they can only be determined by the person who's by the, by each of you individually. Like you get to define where that line is. You get to define whether walking away from tr a trade is actually just smart because you're managing your energy. You're keeping your perspective clear so you can go back in or whether you're walking away because you're, you can't deal with the emotional volatility that occurs just from sitting there. Right. And so you're not able to kind of use your time effectively. So at the end of the day, whether we're talking about greed, fear, or anything else, it's each individual person has to kind of go through the material, go through their own experience and kind of start to line things up so we can get better at solving the problems. I think a lot of the problem solving has been difficult because things have just been disorganized. Yeah. That whole section on uh, greed and sort of like the positive spin on it being ambition was super fascinating to me. And it made me think about some of that advice that you gave. Um, so when you talked in the book about how walking away, I believe you classify those sorts of things as a short term fix. And I thought that these are things we've said a lot. And the more I thought about it is that you're right. Unless you know why you can't solve your trading problems. If, if the underlying problem is that your strategy is weak or that you have poor risk management, you can't just walk away every time. Um, there are times where it might be helping you, but eventually you're going to have to understand what it is that's putting you in these positions you have to walk away from. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well said. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to part one of our interview with Jared Tendler. 
Dan and I read the whole book. And as you can probably tell, we have a lot of thoughts that we wanted to discuss with him. So next week, we're going to talk about confidence and what that actually means when you're trading. It's super fascinating. He has a definition of confidence that is different than what I learned, but I think it's something that'll help you diagnose what you need to trade your best. So we'll be back then. In the meantime, Dan's away. So I'll just do this myself and say, have a great weekend. We'll see you in Thursday next week. Namaste and trade well. Limit Up is presented by Top Step and produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contain substantial risk. It is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.